So there's a, a guy who walks into a bar. This is not a joke. This is it really happened. A guy walked into a bar. The other guy ducked. A guy walks into a bar, and he's big, big burly guy. This is a bar at a at a hotel lounge, up on the twentieth floor, and he sits down at the bar, and. Uh, he starts talking to the stranger next to him, and he says to him, by the way, do you know here on the 20th floor that the wind current between the buildings here is so strong that if you jump out of the window, before you hit the floor, the wind current will actually lift you back up and put you back inside the window. So the other guy says, no, that's impossible. The big burly guy says, no, it's definitely true, and I'll, and I'll prove it to you. So they go over to the window, 20th floor, and he jumps out, starts plummeting, but then a second before he hits the sidewalk, he just sort of makes a U-turn and he sails, floats back up and hops back in the window and he says, there, you see, 100% uh, fine. So uh, the other guy says, wow, that's amazing, I gotta try that. He jumps out of the window and he plummets and he hits the sidewalk. And the bartender says, Superman, you're a real mean guy when you're drunk. <laughs> Superman, you're a real mean guy when you're drunk. Yeah. Okay. What we're, what we're going to talk about are uh, high-risk situations, last-minute saves right at the last second what am i talking about specifically i'm speaking about the great paradox of pesach observance the great paradox of pesach observance is that we spend weeks maybe even in some cases months getting our homes ready for Pesach, which means specifically to be chametz-free. We rid our homes of chametz. And then, after it's all done, we deliberately bring into our homes the biggest risk of chametz that there could be. I'm talking about the matzah itself. We take a product that is made from two ingredients. Which two ingredients? The two ingredients that make chametz. You take flour, you take water, and you mix them together, and the timer starts ticking, and it's like the bomb squad trying to defuse a time bomb. You have 18 minutes to get this thing baked, or it's going to become the exact thing that you just spent a month getting rid of. So here's the question. Instead of creating this high-pressure situation, why don't we just avoid the whole thing? Now, I'm not saying not to eat matzah. You have to eat matzah. It's part of Pesach. But we can make alternative matzah. Here's the suggestion. Alternative matzah. What would be alternative matzah? You know, have you seen the Pesach Deke products that they make today? with the tapioca flour and the potato starch. They make stuff that looks like bagels and bialis and all types of stuff. So I'm sure 
that with this same non-grain flour, they could make some pretty convincing shmura matzah. Why not? You're saying no. You don't go for it. Why? Why not? Or to test us. No. Why can't you do it? Well, what? What? Why can't we make matzah out of? There are five grains. There are five grains that are true grains. Wheat and barley are the two main ones. And then you have uh, spelt oats rye. So you have wheat, barley, spelt oats rye. So instead of using one of those five, use chickpea flour, use potato starch. So this is an, uh, this is a discussion that our sages have. Yes, this is precisely the discussion that our sages have. This question is asked in the Gemara. The Gemara asks this question, yeah, and it says, based on a pasuk, ushmartem esamatzis. The pasuk says, and you should guard the matzis. So our sages learn from that that which requires guarding. That which, if it wouldn't be for our vigilance, would have inevitably, not inevitably, within 18 minutes, become chametz. So, ushmartem is hamatzais. The verse alludes to the idea that in order to be matzais, matzais in the proper sense of fulfillment of the mitzvah and Pesach, it has to be something that invariably, rather rapidly, in fact, would have become Chometz, which means only from the five grains. The other types of flour do not leaven. They, they, they do not come to chimots when water is combined with them, but rather they uh, begin to rot. Unless you bake them quickly. But they don't have a leavening process. They have, a, they have another chemical reaction. Only those five types of grains have that leavening process. So, this question was asked and answered by our sages long ago. The answer is, Ushmartem is a The posuk, the verse, comes to tell us. Matzais are by definition not just non-chomets. Not just non-chomets, but matzais are by definition what would have become chomets except for intervention. Okay. So, we have to understand this concept a little bit, a little bit better. Levi Yitzchak Bedichever, the great defender of the Jewish people, great lover and defender of the Jewish people, was always looking for uh, an extenuating circumstance on the basis of which to exonerate Jewish people and, and, and the Jewish people in general. So there's one story where uh, Levi Yitzchak Berdichev says to Hashem, he says, Rabbeinu Shalalem, 
Look how you made the world. You took all of the temptations and you put them in front of our face. You walk down the street and you're beset with temptation. And you took all the truth, the wisdom, and you hid it in books. Imagine if someone would have been born to a world where it was reversed. Imagine if you, master of the world, had brought a person into a world where you walk down the street and you are beset with truth and with wisdom, and that if you wanted temptation, you'd have to go read about it in a book. Then nobody would sin. But since you did the opposite, what else do you expect from us and what claim can you possibly have against us? So that's a wonderful story of, Le of Levi Yitzchak and it's typical of those kinds of stories. Um, but it's still, the question remains, why in fact did Hashem create such a world? Why did Hashem create the world in such a way that the entire prospect of entering this world is fraught with spiritual peril. The riskiest thing that can ever happen to a neshama is coming into this world. Why did Hashem set it up that way? Okay, so you can have all the all the answers about free will and it tests us and it's uh, to strengthen us, but give it time for a minute to, to ponder the philosophical question that there's an alternative. I mean, at least for a moment, consider the fact that at least in theory, at least in theory, the world could have been different. There could have been a world, there could have been souls that go into bodies, and it wouldn't have to be so high risk. It wouldn't have to be something that's almost invariably going to cause damage or at least has a high, high, high likelihood. Who, who emerges from their embodiment unscathed, spiritually unscathed? It wasn't supposed to be like that. It's from the So you're saying initially it wasn't supposed to be like that. So Hashem created the world. Right, so there was, a, there, was, there was a heaven on earth, it was Gan Eden. Okay, fine, true. So that's correct but well yeah we we did it to ourselves is 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 easy but let me just push back a little bit and perhaps this again is a levi yitzchak bridge of our line but you know like it says in tehillim adam, which in kabbalah is understood as referring to the uh, sin of the tree of knowledge Neda alila abneyodam, an alila is a, is a libel. So basically it means, that verse means that Hashem launched a terrible libel against bneyodam, against humanity. In other words, he framed us. He wanted us to look like we caused it to ourselves. We didn't cause it to ourselves. Okay, we were somewhat complicit, but it was entrapment. He set the whole thing up, and he knew from the very beginning there was going to be a sin of the tree of knowledge, and he obviously had that planned out. That was part of the drama part of what he expected to happen. 
By the way, similarly, the same thing, giving us all that gold when we left Egypt and then being shocked that there was a sin of the golden calf. So, yeah, there is some, uh, some partial blame on our part, but Hashem set it up that <laughs> the whole heaven on earth thing was so fragile that it was basically set up to fail. And he knew he was creating a world where for 99.9% .9 of history, I mean, except for those first few hours, <laughs> the, the human condition is going to be one where embodiment is incredibly challenging for the soul. And that the soul is going to be at risk the whole time that it's here. So it's back on Hashem. It's, the ball's back in his court for creating the world this way. So I'll tell you a story. The story is about uh, really about a father. Or maybe some would say it's a story about a son. I don't know. I'll let you decide if it's a story about a father or a story about a son. I guess, I guess it depends on who you identify with. A chassid, a simple chassid, a, a farmer from one of the towns outside of Lyajna. Lyajna was where the, where the Alter Rebbe, the, the Balatanya, held court for most of the years of his leadership. So a simple chassid, a farmer from an, a small town outside of Lyajna, a small village, he came to the Alter Rebbe and he was bemoaning the state of his young son, his teenage son, who was a very talented boy, very clever and charismatic, had a very strong personality, and this boy was headed down the wrong path. And in today's day and age, we would call it youth at risk. So the Alter Rebbe told this man, you arrange to get your son to me, and I'll take care of the rest. So the father comes back home, he sees the son, and he knows that his son has a weakness for one thing. He loves horseback riding. Now, horseback riding, so what do we know about horses? We, know, we don't know anything about horses. But in the late 1700s, in Eastern Europe, horseback riding was not considered to be, and I mean, today probably it's considered very posh, right? Horseback riding, right? Okay. But in late 1700s Eastern Europe, riding on a horse was like for a Cossack. It was a real crass, coarse type of thing. That's, no, that's not what a, a Jewish boy didn't go horseback riding. Yeah, you have a horse, so it's a beast of burden at the family farm, it pulls the plow. Or you hook it up to a buggy and you go sit in the buggy like a mensch. But to go riding on a horse, like, like a Cossack, it's very not nice. And this boy was into that, okay? And this was part of, or symptomatic of, his whole uh, leaving the the fold so the father knew 
that if he offers the boy an opportunity to ride the horse, he's not going to be able to resist. So the father says to the boy, I have an errand that needs to be done in Lyajna, in town. I want to know if you can maybe do it for me. So the boy says, perhaps a bit um, brazenly, yeah, I'll do it if I get to ride the horse. So the father, that's what he had in mind the whole time. He says, fine, okay, ride the horse. But he knew that's what's going to get the boy to go into town. So the boy gets on the horse and he rides into town. And uh, he comes to the Alter Rebbe. His errand was to bring some type of a message. And once he was in the, the shul of the Alter Rebbe, it was uh, not very hard to get him into a personal audience. So he's, he's there in, in the Alter Rebbe's presence, in the Alter Rebbe's room. And the Alter Rebbe just starts chatting with him, conversing with him and uh, asking him about his life and what his interests are, what he likes, and the boy starts talking about horses. And um, the Al-Tarebbe says, explain to me, because I don't get it. What is the attraction, what's the allure of, of a horse? So the boy says, well, if it's a, you know, if it's a good horse, a strong horse, a fast horse, it gets you to your destination so much more quickly. Now, the Rebbe nodded in agreement and he said, yeah, but if it's a fast horse, then if it goes off course, then it gets you lost. It gets you away from the path so much faster. The boy thinks for a minute and says, yeah, well, that's true. But also, if it's a fast horse, as soon as you realize you're off the right path, you get back on the right path so much faster as well. Now the devil says, ah, yes. As soon as you realize. He said in Yiddish, Ven As soon as he realizes... And then the boy, it dawned upon him that the Alter Rebbe had been speaking to him in metaphor about his own life. That he was in possession of a fast, powerful, mighty horse. This was a certain power within him. And that this power within him had become counterproductive. Right? The one who is greater than his colleague, his evil inclination is commensurately greater. So here was this talented young man, and he had this fast horse, let's call it, this power, powerful personality, talents. And uh, rather than being an asset, they had become uh, liabilities. And it was drawing him away from the proper path in life. The Al-Tarebbe then <laughs> caused him to see how the very same force 
that had become destructive, as long as he would identify it as such, if he could self-diagnose and realize that he was not on a good path and he was quickly getting farther and farther off the path, then the very same power which had become destructive would actually become a positive force, would bring him back to the right path as soon as he realizes. In other words, the Al-Tarebbe didn't tell him that there's a, you know, an evil monster and you have to go kill it or trap it or tie it up and throw it in the bottom of the sea. The Al-Tarebbe told him there's a horse. Now the horse right now is taking you on the wrong path. But if you become cognizant of the situation and you'll recalibrate, that very same horse, the very same horse will become the engine to bring you back on the right path, and not only bring you back on the right path, but ultimately that horse, that engine, will be what propels you for the rest of your life to accomplish great things. Now, this is a story about I said, I don't know if it's a story about a father or a story about a son. It, it's obvious to say it's a story about a son because he gets the most screen time in the story. But uh, I think it's also a story about a father because uh, you don't see the father's reaction. Maybe even the father doesn't even know the whole story. I don't know. But it's a lesson for the father as well, which is that... Um, Sometimes, maybe, maybe all the time, <laughs> what we think is a bug of our children is actually a feature. And if we don't know how to nurture it and channel it, obviously it becomes destructive. But the difference between destructive and constructive is not getting rid of it, but properly directing it and 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 that's uh I mean, that's not just a parenting tip it is a parenting tip it's a big parenting tip but uh that's a guide in life we have this ego this sense of separate selfhood. Those who have learned you know what, a, what an absurd delusion it is to buy into one's own separate sense of selfhood, right? There's nothing but Hashem. And nevertheless, we were given this really robust sense of separate identity I am oh yeah Hashem may be bigger than me and older than me and more powerful than me but I am right I am and I claim I claim my autonomy at least in my little bubble I I get to do some of the things I want to do that's called ego or ego edging God out that sense of 
I am autonomous, both in my existence and in how I, uh, how I live. And that is the root of all evil. Ego is the root of all evil. Self-consciousness becomes self-obsession, which becomes the justification for everything. Nobody thinks he's the bad guy. Nobody thinks he's the bad guy. Everybody thinks they're a tragic figure. Nobody thinks they're the villain in anyone else's story. It all comes from ego. In fact, Siddham tell a parable about the, uh, the Malachamovis, the angel of death. He came to God and he complained that his name is bad for business. Because the Malachamovis, his job is punitive. He's supposed to punish people with death, death sentence. But in order to do that, he has to trip people up and make them liable for death by making poor decisions. And when his name has the word death in it, people go running. So he says to God, I can't do my job with a name like Malachamovis, like angel of death. So God says, fine, no problem. I'll give you a name that's a little more tame. You do a DBA, doing business as. And you'll, uh, you'll call yourself Satan. So he says, okay, I'll try it out. And he comes back and he says, well, it's not good. God says, why is it not good? He says, because people ask me, what does it mean? I say, it's a Hebrew name. Don't worry about it. They say, but what's the translation? Adversary. <laughs> Adversary? I thought you were my friend. Take a hike. So Hashem says, fine, call yourself Yetzahara. So he tries Yetzahara. He comes back and says, God, it's no good. Has Ra right in the name. Ra means evil. Evil inclination. Come on. I'm showing my cards. God says, okay, fine. I got another name for you. This name the Chassidim came up with, and it's almost cute. You call yourself Nefesh Abamis, animal soul. It's almost, you know, it's kind of cuddly, animal soul. So he goes and he tries it, he comes back and says, God, this is still not working. I'm about to close the deal. I'm about to convince somebody to do something totally insane and convince them that it's in their best interest, right? And they're about to do it. And then they say to me, what's your name again? And I say, Animal Soul. They say, you know what? I'm not comfortable taking life decisions, uh, making life decisions based on guidance from an animal. I'm going to talk it over with a couple people. And that's it. Boom. And I lose it. And they never, they never get back to me. So, uh, so God says to the angel of death slash adversary slash evil inclination slash animal soul, he says, listen, I didn't want it to come to this. But I have a name for you. You can do business under this name, and it's perfect for what you do. And in fact, if you call yourself this name, nobody will ever question you. In fact, they will always think that you have their best interests at heart. And in fact, they will not listen to their loved ones. They'll listen to you. He says, what's the name that I should, that I should call myself? What, what is it? He says, call yourself Yesh. Yesh, I exist, or conscious existence, ego, sense of selfhood. And uh, as the parable goes, the, uh, 
Malachamovas slash Sotan slash Yitzhahara slash Nevjabamis went under the name Yesh. And business has been so booming ever since then that he hired another delegate to focus on each and every one of us. In other words, it's that voice in your head that sounds smart because it sounds like you. So that's the ego. That's the ego. The ego is the source of all of our problems. So I have an idea. How about Hashem could reorganize reality and he could create everything? It would be just exactly the way it is, except we would be egoless. We would eliminate that potential for disaster. We'll make it safe. The soul will come to a body, right? Then it can do physical mitzvahs and everything. But no ego. No separate sense of selfhood. So th this, this possibility was also considered at one time. And pleaded. The case was pleaded before, before Hashem. When, when, when did it take place? Right before the giving of the Torah. Right before the giving of the Torah, the angels came to Hashem and they said, how can you give your glory? The Torah is Hashem's glory. It existed before the creation of the world. Primordial wisdom. The blueprint of creation. How can you take your glory and give it to human beings of flesh and blood? It's, a, it's degrading. It's degrading. And they're going to mess it up. They're going to all mess it up. They're not going to do it. They're not going to keep it. So Meshe Rabbeinu was up in heaven at that time. It was during the 40 days and 40 nights. And um, so Hashem told Meshe Rabbeinu, He says, no, you answer them. So, uh, so, so Meshe Rabbeinu starts going through the Ten Commandments and showing how they're inapplicable. Were you brought out of Egypt? Do you have parents? Do you, do you work so that you should rest? Do you, do you have envy and competition amongst you? But then the coup de grace, like the winning argument, he says, listen, but forget all the specific details of these commandments, whether or not they apply to you. Let me ask you a very general question. Do you guys even have a Yetzirah? No, I didn't think so. Case closed. And that was it. And, and Hashem gave the Torah to the, to the Jewish people. Souls in bodies. So it's kind of counterintuitive, at least at first glance. Do you guys even have an evil inclination? And that was the winning argument. That should have been the winning argument for the angels. The angels should have said, look, we don't even have an evil inclination. We're not going to mess this thing up. And Meshadabeno did the opposite. He said to the angels, do you guys even have an evil inclination? No, I didn't think so. And as such, what's the point of giving you the Torah? 
So, when Hashem gave the Torah, and He gave it to people who have that separate sense of self, who have that ability to rationalize and self-justify to the point of even making very poor decisions. When Hashem decided to give the Torah to such people, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't by accident at all. It was by design. He gave us that evil inclination. He gave us that, that ego, that sense of self. And that also wasn't by accident. That was also by design. That also wasn't the bug. It was a feature. It was the primary feature. This is the idea of a high-risk, high-yield investment. No risk, no return. Little risk, little return. High risk, high return. What was the high risk? The high risk was creating us the way that we, we were created. Hashem, you bet the farm. He went for broke. He put all of his chips on one number and he spun the, the roulette wheel, so to speak. And the odds are, the odds are we're going to mess it up. The odds are this is not going to work out well. But the end of the story, we all know it. We know the end of the story. The end of the story is when he realizes, when each one of us realizes that there's a horse inside of us and if it's unchecked, it's destructive. But when it's harnessed and it's focused, then it's an asset, the greatest asset then that is the greatest reward for Hashem, the greatest gain, the greatest profit from Hashem's perspective. How does Hashem gain? How does it? They say, what do you get for the man who has everything? Penicillin. What do you get for the man who has everything? Penicillin. He has everything. You got to give him penicillin. He has everything. What do you think about it? Okay. What do you give Hashem? Where, where can Hashem gain? Where can Hashem make a profit? He's got everything. Profit for Hashem is when He gives us free choice and He stacks the, odd, he stacks the odds against us and we still come through. And not only we come, in, we come through in spite of this, uh, this ego, but we incorporate that into our service of Hashem. And we make that the basis of our service of Hashem. In other words, we choose to humble ourselves. 
See, angels don't humble themselves. What ego do they have? They don't have an ego. A human being has to humble himself or herself. In other words, it's just like matzah. Matzah is humility, right? Matzah is flat. That symbolizes the humility. Chometz is puffy, and it symbolizes, therefore, it symbolizes ego. And our sages say that the Yetzirah is likened to Chometz. So Matzah is Bittel. Bittel is self-abnegation, self-nullification, self-sacrifice. Sometimes we say Bittel isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Bittel is freedom from self-obsession. But true Bittel isn't when the default setting is a lack of self-concept. That's like an angel. Hashem didn't give the Torah to the angels. He gave it to souls and bodies. True Bittel is when there's an act of surrender. There's a choice to surrender. That if it wouldn't be for the surrender, then this ego would become unfathomably destructive. But when I intervene, when I make a, when I make a choice and I decide to surrender to Hashem, surrender that ego, then the surrender itself becomes the ultimate vehicle for God to express himself in my life, for his will to be expressed through my will, to make my will his will. But that only happens when there's the potential to assert self-will. So it's exactly the same premise as why only that which could have been chametz can be matzah. Only that which could have asserted its sense of selfhood, meaning the Jewish soul that's in a body with an animal soul in a healthy, robust sense of separate selfhood. That's, that's the water hitting the flower. And invariably, if you leave that alone, if there's no training, there's no chinuch, there's no, there's no intervention, what's, I mean, it's a, it's a given. You make that fatal combination. You put a soul in a body and give it an ego and a separate sense of selfhood. It's like the water hitting the flower. It's only a matter of time, rather rapidly, in fact, that things are going to get out of hand. And yet, if we can intervene in that situation, that's when we can become matzah. When we choose selflessness. We choose selflessness. The act of surrender, the choice of surrender, to tell Hashem, your will, not my will. Oh, I have a will, but no, I'm choosing your will, not my will. That's matzah. And if not, if that's not even on the table, if the potential for the horse to destroy us is not even on the table, then there's no potential for the horse to become to become the, the engine for great spiritual accomplishments. Nothing. And, and, and for that, Hashem didn't need to give the Torah to souls and bodies. And in fact, Hashem didn't need to make a physical world. He didn't have to make any of this. 
So the entire purpose of creation is really based on the premise, like Levi Yitzchok Badich of a question, why is it like this? Well, like we said, it's not a bug, it's a feature. This is the nature of existence, yeah? You point out what our sages say. Why does it say "b'cholavavcha," not "b'cholibcha"? That you should love Hashem. You have to Hashem like You should love the Lord your God. B'cholavavcha. Grammatically, you would expect it to say "b'cholibcha" with all of your heart, with one base. It says it with two of them, and uh, our sages point out that this is referring to two hearts, two dimensions of the heart. The Yitzhatayv and the Yitzhahara. That ultimately, love of Hashem is not an, it's not enough to love Hashem with that part of us that is naturally inclined to love of Hashem. In other words, what we call the godly soul. But we should take that part of us that on its own, that left to its own devices, rebels against Hashem, and to curb that, and to train it to domesticate that beast, and to turn it into a, an asset, like, 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 Shlema Melech, who was the wisest of all men, he had the best parables. He said, says in Mishli, in Proverbs, that there's much produce from the strength of an ox. He wasn't giving farming tips. What he was saying is that an ox left on its own is a bull in a china shop. It ruins everything. But when you put a yoke on its back, then everything grows. Yeah. Rabbi Tal, can you give the Hasidic reason why they, most of the Jews did not leave in Mitzrayim? I've heard people say they liked what they had rather than what they were going to. Is there a different uh, perspective that the Rebbe took why those people didn't leave Mitzrayim? Most of them did not leave. The question, why four-fifths of the people did not leave Mitzrayim? Maybe I could throw it back on you and say, why did one-fifth leave? Oh, okay. Uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a bigger question, which is, if four-fifths, and you hear this, I've, I've heard people say this, if four-fifths didn't even leave Mitzrayim, why do we think that we're going to do any better when Mashiach comes? I hear this all the time. People say... That maybe the majority of Klal Yisrael, are going to remain in Gullis. You ever hear people speak this way? I have. It's horrifying. So let me share one perspective with you about that. And it actually is based on the Haggadah. And a Hasidic understanding of the Haggadah. Specifically the Rebbe's way of explaining it. You know with the four sons... When we say to the wicked son, if you would have been there, you would have not have been redeemed. What kind of thing is that to tell the kid? What kind of thing is that to tell him? That's devastating. You're cutting him off. You're telling him that you shouldn't have even made it here. That's what it sounds like. So the Rebbe explains it like this. 
What are you telling him? If you would have been there, if you would have been in Mitzrayim, you wouldn't have made it out. That's true. Because that was Mitzrayim. That was not the ultimate, perfect, complete redemption. The proof of which is that after we left Egypt, we were in exile again multiple times. But I want you to know something. That was then. This is now. In the coming redemption with Mashiach, every single Jew will be redeemed. So yeah, you wouldn't have been able to leave Mitzrayim. That's true. But I'm pointing that out so that you understand that that will not prevent you from leaving this exile with Mashiach. So in, in order to answer your question, let me say it like this. Psychologically, it makes a lot of sense that plenty of people didn't leave and that even a majority of people didn't leave or even a vast majority of people didn't leave. What's the Chiddush, the novel idea, is that when Mashiach comes, everyone's going to leave. Which is really, at the, end of, at the end of it all, what really counts. There are people who are going to be struggling until the last moment. People who you would think, you want to talk about high risk, high yield. There are people who, until the very last second, you would think there's no way they're ever getting on board with this. There's no way. They're not going to be part of this redemption. It can't be. I don't see it. And those people at the last second are going to turn around. And, that, and that's exactly what Hashem wants. That's exactly why things were set up the way that they were. In order to have that high risk, high yield, so we can take, think about it like this, you're taking the negativity and you're transforming it. You're taking a, a potential force for destruction, not just a potential force for destruction, but in, in actuality a force which, unfortunately, most of the time becomes destructive, and that force itself is being repurposed. So the kid with the fast horse that was destroying his life now becomes the kid with the fast horse who is, who is, who is making incredible strides in, in getting closer and closer to Hashem. And of course that kid is all of us. The kid's father is all of us. And we're, <laughs> it's multidimensional. <sighs> anyway, yeah. In that, in that uh, parable, the father doesn't reject the son, right? Right. I, I think that's also an important lesson for us. You know, the kid was quote unquote at risk, you know, and not going in the ways of the uh, family father wanted to. And father even thought of how to let him use the force in such a way, but my point is that he didn't reject him and say, you know, this guy's no good. Let's, um, he didn't reject him, but that's not enough. And that wouldn't have been a story. Because he wasn't rejecting him wasn't the story. The story was that the Alter Rebbe told him, or he didn't even tell him necessarily. We don't even know if he knew what transpi transpired. doesn't matter what the father knows. What matters is what the son knows. By the way, it doesn't matter what you think of your kids. It matters what they think of themselves. 
Okay, let me just make this clear because to you, what's obvious is not obvious to others. It's not that the father didn't reject him. It's that the kid was told that there's nothing wrong with you. To the contrary, there's everything right about you. See, there's a big difference between telling somebody, look, you're messed up, but you are messed up, kid. And so, therefore, you'll always have a place here. That's called tolerance. Is that wrong? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's condescending, and nobody wants to be condescended to. But second of all, it's untrue. Because Hashem didn't give people character defects in order to plague them and burden them. Every single character defect is just an unchanneled character asset. So the truth to be told to our children, to ourselves, to each other, is that whatever it is that's ruining your life is just an as-of-yet unchanneled power to give you a very, very meaningful life. It's one and the same force. Yeah? I appreciate you going through it again. I didn't mean that that was the point of the story. I'm adding that it's a, you know, an angle worth looking at because we're the son, we're the father, but we're also the kid and Hashem is our father saying, you know, you're messing up, but I'm going to help you channel, you know, if you're open to it. Shem's the ultimate father. Shem doesn't, uh, doesn't reject us for being messed up because first of all, he's the one who made us messed up. But second of all, he knows that we're not really messed up. That, this, that we can use those powers. Not only we can, but the only reason we were given these issues is because they're really powerful in a, in a, in a positive way. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. The fact that flour and water become chametz is not a problem. It's what makes it possible to have matzah. We have to understand what matzah is. Matzah isn't just something that's not chametz. If that were the case, then eat a piece of styrofoam. Matzah is precisely that which would have, and by all rights, should have become chametz. That's, that's, that's a metaphor for life and for existence and for each one of us and for and for the whole world. It's not just that which isn't chametz, isn't ego, but that which would have and by all rights should have become unchecked, out of control ego, except for intervention. Which is also why, and this is, a, this is a topic for another time, it's an ongoing avoida. It's an ongoing avoida. It's not just like you make a decision one time to surrender. 
It's an ongoing thing. It's a daily thing. Every single day, every single moment. Anyway. Sorry. We're good? Yeah? Yeah? We'll do boom and boom. Okay. Yeah, quick. Let's do it. One is an intervention in, in, in stopping something, and the other is an intervention in adding something. In other words, when you just said, a, a, when you have a negative character trait, it's recognizing that we can use it for good. Right. The, hum, the, the matzah thing is, if we left it alone and didn't intervene and stop it, then it would become this, this thing we don't want it to be. The other one is we have to add this, we almost have to stop. But it's not just that we, do, we stop the matzah. It's not that we stop the dough from becoming chametz. Okay. It's that the intervention makes the dough into matzah. Right. It's not just we didn't let it become chametz. Right. We made it into matzah. Right, but the intervention, just it sounds like the intervention is holding back with the matzah case. We, we give it less time, we hold it back. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just the processes are holding back. And in, uh, in other cases, sometimes the process is adding to. Well, the, the process stuff. is intervention. It is holding back. It's holding back the, the, the asserting self-will. No, I'm saying when you, when you notice that a, a negative character trait, it really can be used for positive. I, I, you're right. It's, it depends. You, you can use it for positive by holding back your ego and realizing you could use it in another way. But when we develop character traits, it's usually a positive concept. It's not seeing it as a negative. No, the, in the end, it's used as a positive thing. Yeah. But the initial act of intervention is an act of surrender. The same by the parent to notice that the kid does have good qualities. Do you know what I mean? Just the analogy was, was a little off for me, but I get what you're saying. Well, ultimately, the parents can't do it for the kid. The kid has to do it for himself. Each one of us has to do it for ourselves. Right, so you're saying when kids have a, a character trait and parents see it When you have a character trait, don't worry about parents. Don't worry about parents. That's that's a step removed. Let's not worry about klisheni. Klirishen ala Okay. When we have character defects, the common denominator in the solution to every one of them is some act of self-nullification. Right, I get that. It's just you said any character defect is just really an unchanneled character asset. After self-nullification. Right. But this is not Musa. This is not Musa where you take, where you try to build yourself into a mensch. We don't do that. We're not into self-help. This is chsidis. Chsidis is bitl, 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 bitl. So, first step is matzah, bitl, surrender, selflessness. After you make room for Hashem and you let the light shine in, then the character assets start to, to manifest. But it's not that we purposely pursue character assets. That's a byproduct of Bittl. The whole thing's about Bittl. Okay, let me do it real quick. Yeah. Um, okay, so just wondering about the Russian 